morning. It's good to be up with you guys. We, over the last several weeks, we have been um, beginning to examine the book of Colossians. And I just, I was like chomping at the bit to get here. So last week I go up to Lee, I go, I know that you're scheduled to, to teach this week, but do you think maybe you can take the weekend off? And he's like, all right, fine. So we're, we've been studying the book of Colossians. Now, Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to believers in the city of Colossae. And just a little bit of background for us, because we have to remember that the Bible didn't just fall down from heaven. It was actually letters written by different people inspired by God, but written by human beings within a cultural context to a specific audience within their own cultural context. So often we just want to kind of open up the Bible and go, hmm, what does this mean to me? without taking into consideration what it meant to the original audience. And in so doing, it's so easy to make the Bible say pretty much anything we want it to say. So we want to to understand it in its context before we seek to understand what it means to us today. Does that make sense? So Paul is writing this letter to Christians in the city of Colossae. Colossae was a, at one time, important trade city. It was located along a very important trade route. But some years before the writing of this letter, that trade route was actually changed and Colossae was no longer as important. It began to wane in its importance. But because it had been such a central trade city, it was full, it was like a melting pot city, kind of like Los Angeles, full of tons of different cultures. You had a lot of Jewish people there. You also had a lot of Romans, a lot of Greeks, a lot of pagan believers, all in this little city, all interacting, all kind of, uh, you know, influencing one another. Paul didn't actually found the church in Colossae. Like most of the letters that he writes, he normally is writing to a church that's established. Usually it's one that he has himself started. But instead, Colossae was started by this guy, Epaphras, who was a convert of Paul. Paul had brought him to know Jesus Christ, shared the gospel message with him. Epaphras then went back home to Colossae and began to share it with his friends and with others. The gospel began to really take root and the church began to grow up. But as often happens, because they're surrounded by so many different belief systems, so many different philosophies, as the church started to grow, different teachings, different philosophies begin to infiltrate the church and begin to tweak the gospel message. Now, Epaphras, who's kind of like the, the pastor over this church, feels a lot of ownership and responsibility for it begins to see this teaching seeping in and by the way theologians don't know exactly what the teaching was they don't believe it was any one particular teaching they didn't they you know gnosticism is one we like to throw up there this belief that you need to know certain unknown um truths and if you know those truths that most people don't know then you're in then you get to go to the higher echelons Although there was probably a little bit of that, it wasn't just straight Gnosticism. They do know that we had a lot of different perspectives, some from Jewish origin, some from pagan origin, that were beginning to speak into the gospel message, beginning to tweak it and change it. The point was, what they do know because of what Paul ends up writing, is that whatever they were saying, they were basically saying the gospel message that you've heard is good, but it's just a beginning. It's not enough. Jesus Christ, wonderful guy, great beginning savior, but if you really want to reach full, true spiritual fullness, spiritual maturity, 
then you need to know these certain things. You need to pray to these other deities. You need to do these certain things, A, B, and C, or you need to stop doing A, B, and C. And if you do, then you will truly reach full spiritual maturity. Jesus is great, but he's a starting point. He's insufficient. Epaphras sees this false teaching beginning to make headway into the little church, and he gets nervous, and it's like a good leader will do when he recognizes this is kind of above my pay grade. I've never encountered this before. He goes to somebody he knows that can kind of speak into this. It's the same thing I do all the time. You know, I get, I get confronted with something. I'm not really sure how to respond. There's lots of different things I could do, but I don't know what the wisest decision is. I go straight to Lee. He's got a lot more experience than I do. And I go, what, do you, what would you do in this situation? And, and we kind of talk it through. A lot of times he'll go, you know, he'll ask me questions to get me to think. And in the process, I grow and learn. But I'm also gleaning from his wisdom. And that's exactly what Epaphras does in this situation. I need to talk to somebody who's, who, who's dealt with this before. So he goes to Rome, where Paul is imprisoned. Paul had been sharing the gospel, and he was, a, he was arrested for rabble-rousing. And he's in prison in Rome. Perhaps it's house arrest, but he's still awaiting a trial that could ultimately end in his execution. And Epaphras goes to Paul and says, Listen, the gospel message that you shared is getting tweaked. It's getting changed. I have all these false teachers and these false philosophies that are totally wreaking havoc in my church. What should I do? And so Paul writes his letter as a response to that. He's never been to the Colossian church. He's never met these Colossians, but he knows about them. And in some ways, he feels himself kind of a grandfather of this church through Epaphras. Now, One other thing before we dive into this section of the letter that we're going to explore today, when we hear the word gospel, it's a word that we tend to think belongs to the church. Gospel, good news is all that really means. We think it's a Christian word, but in fact, gospel was a word that Paul borrowed from Rome. When Caesar, when the emperor at that time would have a major military victory, they would get some heralds, some, some people to go out throughout the kingdom with the good news, the gospel message that the emperor had been victorious again, that the, the kingdom had been preserved or even advanced. And so you can celebrate with your emperor. But tied to this good news proclamation, they would always have this caveat because of what he has done. It's an invitation for you to align yourself even more closely with your emperor, to place your trust, your devotion even more firmly in your emperor. And we can see how Paul would go, well, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to take the gospel message. Now it's about somebody far greater than Caesar. The gospel message I want to share is a gospel of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's far more than Caesar who's going to die. I want to tell you about the good news of him. And in so doing, I want to invite you to align yourself far more closely with him because the who of the gospel that we're about to examine, the who of the gospel is completely and utterly sufficient to be fully mature, to be fully um, spiritually grown. He is a great enough Savior that you need no other steps towards fullness, like these false teachers are suggesting. By the word fullness is a word that they would use to say, Jesus is a good start. It's kind of like 101. But you need 201, 301, 401 to be full 
spiritually full. And Paul's saying, hold on a second. If you're saying that, you obviously don't understand the who of the gospel. So now, let's take a look at the who of the gospel. Go with me to Colossians chapter 1. Still with me? All right. Little Mia's back there sleeping. We have our newest addition to the church. She's like, what, two weeks old now? I love it. So fun. And she is so much calmer than my children ever were at this age. My boys let them, you know, made their presence known. All right. Verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. Again, he is now going to introduce us to the who of the gospel. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from amongst the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, that's like drinking from a theological fire hose. I know. You're like, okay, wow, that's a lot of information packed into a couple of lines. And it's difficult to tell by reading it in the English translation, but this was actually a poem or a hymn. The way it's set up is almost like one of the songs that we sing at the beginning of of church, a way of reminding the Christian believers of who they were worshiping and who he truly was. Now, Paul might have written this kind of as a way of crystallizing who Christ is, or it might have been something that the churches, you know, one of the songs that the church that he was at or he was familiar with had come up with, and he goes, yes, that states it exactly so here. I'm going to, in my letter, kind of begin by sharing with you the who of the gospel. And what I want to do now is I want to take a couple of minutes and I just want to unpack what this hymn says about Jesus, okay? We're going to take it piece by piece. Go back to verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Now, we recognize that God is other. God is spiritual in the sense that we don't see him. And in fact, Scripture tells us that if we even laid eyes on God, we wouldn't be able to survive because it would truly, literally blow our minds. He just, we cannot stand in the presence of God. That said, Jesus is the image. Now, notice it doesn't say Jesus is an image of the invisible God. He's not one of the images of the invisible God. He is the image bearer. The first thing we realize is Jesus is an image bearer. Of God, Not Anne, I, I should restate that. He is the image bearer. All the way down in, in verse 19, it says, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. In other words, when we look at Jesus, we don't just see somebody who represents him, kind of like an ambassador. Remember in, in 2 Corinthians, we are called the ambassadors of Christ ambassadors of reconciliation. We get to represent him, but when you look at Jesus, you see the fullness of God. John, you don't have to turn here, but in in John's gospel, the apostle John puts it this way, says virtually the same thing. No one has ever seen God, 
but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made God known. In other words, you want to know what our God is like? Look to Jesus. He is the perfect image bearer of our Father. He contains within himself the fullness of God. And he represents him. So what is, what is Jesus like? You start ticking it through because that's what our Father is like. He's loving. He's grace-filled. He is a servant leader. When he confronts people who are so focused on, on being right that they're just kind of blind to, to even learning anything new, he would lead with truth. He confronted the Pharisees all the time. But when he was confronted with somebody who was broken and recognized it because of their sin, he led with grace and love. He didn't come to seek and save those who were righteous in their own minds. He came to seek and save the lost, of which we all are lost. But he went after those who were willing and humble enough to actually admit it and want to do something about it. That's the heart of our Father. And we see it through Jesus, which is why... If you are new to the Bible, if you haven't ever really read the Bible, my suggestion would be start in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, pick one. Because those are the pictures that we get of Jesus. And Jesus is a portrait of the heart of our Father. So he is the image bearer of the invisible God. Secondly, though, because he's not just a representative, not just the image bearer. He's much, much more than that. He is both the creator and the sustainer of everything. Verse 16. For in him, through Christ, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. So this is going not just into created things like the chairs and the the ground and all of the material in there. We're not talking just about that. We're not just talking about us. We're talking about angels. We're talking about all of the other spiritual beings were all created through him. Verse 17, he's before all things and in him all things hold together, meaning he is both the creator and the sustainer of everything that we see. Now I read that and my first impulse is to go, well, wait a minute. I thought God created everything. I go back to Genesis 1 in the beginning. You know, I mean, he kind of created the heavens and the earth. He's spoken into existence. What is Jesus? Are we just now attributing thing to Je- things to Jesus that we talk about of God the Father? But to, to that mindset reveals that we're, we're kind of missing a theme that runs both throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is a theme that there is a creative force that emanates directly from God that aided him in the creation. In the Old Testament, it's referred to as Sophia, or wisdom. In the New Testament, it's referred to as the Logos, or the Word. It's this creative force that aids God in creation. Back to John 1 for just a moment. You don't need to turn there, but you're all pretty familiar with this, I would imagine. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, this creative divine force that emanates from God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing has been made that was made. In other words, this Logos, this creative divine force, was a co-creator with our Father in the beginning. 
And as we read in Colossians 1, he is the sustainer of all of these things as well. It's not like he was just there on day one going, oh yeah, let's do that. Yeah, let's, let's put the, the, the land here and oh, I love that volcanoes, those would be cool, you know, fires spewing up, you know, all that kind of stuff. He not only does that, but he holds all things together. So we see so far in Colossians that Jesus Christ is not only the image bearer, the perfect image of our Father, but he is also the creator and sustainer of everything, both angels as well as humans, as well as all of creation. But not only that, but he is the owner or the Lord over all of these things. Back to verse 15 for a second. We read, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now I want to pause there because when I read that, the English translation of that suggests or insinuates that Jesus was merely the first created thing, right? When I think firstborn, I think, well, you know, the first created thing, the first one out of the womb or whatever. And theologically, we understand that Jesus really has no beginning. He, has em- he emanates from God. But he has, what this is saying is not about whether Jesus was created, but rather a relational tie to God. He is the firstborn over creation. Back in biblical times, when somebody had a a large estate, who was the heir of the estate? The firstborn, the first son. And he's suggesting here, Jesus is not the firstborn of creation, but he is the firstborn of over creation. Do you see that? The way that that is the difference there? He has the relational ownership. He is the heir of everything. Now I have to, I have to pause here for just a second because I, this week I have been wrestling with an attempt to try to fully and adequately explain Jesus's relationship to God. Fully and adequately explain the Trinity to you in a way that we all go, oh yeah, totally makes sense. You know, Check that box, got the Trinity figured out. And I'm just going to admit right here, I can't do it. I'd like to, because that's the way my mind works. I'd like to be able to take the mystery of an infinite God and in a couple of sentences say, there you go, done. But God is so much greater than our, our minds can understand that it would be tantamount to somebody who lives in a two-dimensional plane. All we know is height or like width and length. We live in flatland, okay? Just for the moment. We live in flatland and a three-dimensional being comes and puts his finger down into our two-dimensional existence. And then I stand up and go, let me explain what he's like. He's like 20 feet wide and he's like 40 feet long and there's God. I haven't got a clue. He's so much greater. I mean, all I've got is the fingertip of God and I'm trying to explain it adequately. We will never fully be able to comprehend our Father, our our God, our Creator. And that's okay. And I need to give myself the grace to recognize that I simply can't do it adequately. Fair? You give me a little bit of grace there? Even if you won't, I'm giving it to myself because he gave it to me. But he is the firstborn over creation. He is the heir of everything. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He's not only the Lord over everything, he's not only the heir of everything, but he's the head of the church. And Lee and I would be the first to say, yes, we may be the pastors here, but this is not our church. This is God's church. Jesus Christ is the head or needs to be the head. And if we are trying to lead by our own wisdom, and at times we do, we will mislead this church. We will lead it astray. Our ardent hope, and if you ever think to pray for us, not only pray for spiritual protection because the enemy loves to take down those in the, in, in, you know, yeah, the enemy would love to take us down, but pray that we are connected to our head and that he is the one who's truly leading our church. Pray for our elders who are trying to follow the lead of Jesus Christ in leading this church. Because if we're not connected to our head, we're in a lot of trouble. He is the head of the church. And, again, continuing verse 18, he is the beginning and the firstborn, again that word, firstborn, from amongst the dead, so that in everything, and here's the point, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus is not some second-rate spiritual being. He is God's only begotten Son. The only person, entity, that derives his entire being from the same essence of the Father. Who has the fullness of God within him. Yes, we are called sons and daughters of God, but you have to remember that our our identity as sons and daughters is derived from our relationship to Jesus. He's the only one whose entire essence emanates from the Father, we get to be adopted as sons and daughters. So He has the preeminence. He is the rightful heir. We get invited into all of this. Not only that, but He is also the first one that was raised from the dead. Now, before Him, guys like Lazarus had been brought back from the dead. I always go, wait a minute, He wasn't the first one raised from the dead. What about Lazarus? But Lazarus died again, didn't He? It wasn't permanent. Jesus is the only one, the first one, that was brought back from the dead, given a resurrection body, so that even some of his own disciples didn't recognize him when they were walking with him. Walking down the road to Emmaus, talking to Jesus, didn't realize it until much later. (gasps) We were talking to Jesus. He's the first one who has been resurrected. He's the first fruits of that. And we have the hope that we too, one day, will no longer be in bodies that break down. Right now, Cheryl's going, amen, I'm so sick and tired of my back pain. Give me my resurrection body. And we want it, and we look forward to it. Jesus is the first fruits of that, so that he, again, is the supreme Lord over even that. So he's the image of the invisible God. He is the creator and sustainer of everything. He is the Lord and heir over everything. And then finally... He is the redeemer of all of creation. Is that what I put? The sole redeemer of this broken universe. I mean, we live, we live in a broken universe, do we not? We all recognize that we live in a broken world. And read this, verse 19. God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Every single one of us could point to things that are broken in this existence. Pain. Physical, emotional, spiritual. Separation. Broken relationships. 
death. We're reminded of it day after day that we live in a broken world. And yet, the hope of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, God has made all things new. Jesus said it this way in the Gospel of John, John 15. In this world, you're going to have trouble. I just want to warn you. You're not promised easy lives. You're not promised wealth. These whole health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preachers who say that God wants you to be comfortable. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to have that house. Okay, that would be nice, but I don't necessarily see that as a promise in Scripture. What I do see is in this world, you're going to have trouble because we live in a broken world. But you can take heart that I have overcome the world. In other words, pain doesn't get the last word. Broken relationships don't get the last word. Death doesn't get the last word. That's the hope we have in Jesus Christ. He is the sole redeemer. None can come to the Father except through Him. So you false teachers who would like to suggest that Jesus is a good stepping stone to spiritual fullness, but He's only one of several steps. He's 101 and you want 201, 301, and 401 so you can be totally full. You have no idea of who you're really talking about. He is the image of the invisible God, the creator and sustainer over everything. He is the Lord of everything, the head of this church. We call ourselves Christians. That just means little Christs. That's our goal, is to emulate our Lord. We don't do it perfectly this side of the grave. That's the goal of the Christian life, is to walk into further intimacy with Him as the Holy Spirit begins to do that and make us more like Him. And he is the sole redeemer over everything. Through his blood, he has made it possible for us to be called sons and daughters of God. Now, we're going to continue on in this for just a second. But before we, we actually... Because Paul has just now kind of given us the who of the gospel. Here's Jesus. You want to know who you worship? You want to know who you put your trust in? Here you go. He's now about to give him the gospel. Reiterate it. And I want to I ask a question that's going to seem disconnected, but it actually has a lot to do with what we're about to read. Does anybody know how federal agents are trained to spot counterfeit money? How do they do it, Merv? That's right. They don't stick them in a room full of a bunch of fake money. Oh, he, see, see, here's the problem with this one, or here's the problem with this one. They stick them into a room full of real money. And they touch it and they smell it and they look at it and they study the minute details of it. They become so intimately familiar with that money that when they're confronted with a fake bill, they can see it a mile away. That is the, the, the tack that Paul takes with these false teachers. Rather than focus on the false teaching, he focuses on the gospel message at the beginning. I want you to remember the gospel that you guys have accepted, the gospel that Epaphras brought to you, the gospel message that I'm in chains in Rome awaiting trial and maybe execution for. I want you to know that gospel so well, in and out, that when you're confronted with a falsehood, when you're confronted with a little bit of a twisted slant on it, 
you will be able to smell that for what it is, a fake. So, continuing on after he's given them this beautiful poem of the who of the gospel, he now reiterates the heart of the gospel. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, so long as you hold on to Christ, rather than going and looking to other created things, rather than going and praying to other angels and all these kind of things, or believing that you have to do something and climb this ladder, the gospel is sufficient. Don't go looking to other things. You know, sin is one of those things that separates us. Sin is the thing that separates us from our Father for a couple of different reasons. The first reason sin separates us from God is because we love sin. This goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, our, our ancestors. In the garden, God places them there and goes, I've made everything for you. It's all yours. Have fun. Just don't touch the tree in the middle, okay? Because the day that you touch that, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day, you're surely going to die. And the enemy comes in and goes, did he really say you couldn't touch that tree? He said you're going to die? He's, ho- he's lying. He's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be like him. And Adam and Eve look at the tree and go, well, fruit does look pretty good. And, and it would be nice to you know, be more like God. Maybe he is holding out on us. Maybe he doesn't have our best interests in mind. And so they take the fruit and they eat it. And the moment that they do, shame enters their existence for the very first time and they find themselves naked and vulnerable and that's not okay anymore. And so they go and hide. They cover themselves from separating even the intimacy that they had with one another but also hiding from God. And isn't that the same thing that happens with us? Something looks so alluring. Something looks so desirable. And yeah, we know that God kind of warns us away from those things. Man, maybe he's holding out on us. Maybe he's just a cosmic killjoy. Maybe, you know, maybe it's not as bad as he would make it out to be. And so we give in to it. And what seemed so desirable at first becomes disgusting to us. And we just want nothing to do with it. And the shame forces us into hiding. Not only from one another, we pretend to be okay when in fact we feel just gross. Kind of like how you feel when you're driving back from Vegas. You're like, I just need a shower. This is gross. But we hide from God. Perhaps it's out of shame, or perhaps it's because we're like Schmeagel with our precious, right? And we're hiding over in the corner going, if I were to come fully into God's presence with my hands open like this, holding it out, he's going to make me put it down, and I don't want to put it down because, honestly, I need this. It's my precious. My wife hates when I do that. Which is why I do it a lot. (laughs) So that's one of the reasons why sin separates us from God. Because we love sin. And we become... It lords it over us. It becomes our masters in some ways. And we have a difficult time letting it go. 
But another reason that sin separates us from God is because God is holy. He is other. He is unsullied by the brokenness of this world. And our sin is an affront, a slap in the face to God. And he simply, as a holy God, cannot abide our sin. He just won't be in our presence because we wouldn't survive that. Kind of like bleach to a stain, he would wipe us out. But, although God is holy, he is also a loving father and loves us so desperately that he has made a way for us to come into his presence and be reunited with him. Father to son, father to daughter. He did it through Christ, and he did it before we had ever taken that first step back towards him. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still in our sin, while we were still completely wallowing in the filth of our rebellion, he sent Christ to die for us, to take upon himself the penalty that was due us. In Colossians 1, Paul says it this way. Verse 21 again. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, he has reconciled you. Underline, circle, highlight, reconciled. It is the key word of this whole passage. The key word of this gospel. Now he has reconciled you to Christ's physical body through death to present you as holy in his sight without blemish, and free from accusation. That term reconciliation is a powerful one. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Reconciliation does not simply mean an ending of overt hostilities. It doesn't just mean a ceasefire. Those of you who are married will understand this well. My wife and I can get into a fight where we are so dogmatically hard-headed about we're right, and if you'll just see it from my first and we just bang at one another until finally we're both so frustrated that we just need to cool off. And so we time out, right? TV time out. We just need to go in other rooms. We just need to take a few minutes to cool off. That's not reconciliation. That is a pause in the action. (laughs) Reconciliation is when you work through your disagreements and you kind of come back to being with one another, aligned with one another. Here's a different definition. It's written down, and let's throw it up here. Reconciliation is the reestablishment of a personal love relationship between two estranged people by resolving the root issues that caused them to be estranged. One more time. Reconciliation, and I know it's a long definition, whatever, it it works. Reconciliation is the reestablishment of a personal love relationship between two estranged people by resolving the root issues that caused them to be estranged. So we are estranged from our Father. Sin is the root issue that has caused us to be estranged from Him. But God is not content simply to leave us in that state. He has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. The best picture I can give you of what takes place through Jesus Christ is imagine for a moment that you were speeding way in excess of the speed limit and you got pulled over and you were brought into a courtroom to stand before a judge and your father 
God is standing on the judge's podium with the judge's robe. If you have a difficult time picturing that, then picture your own father standing on the judge's podium. Robes holding the gavel. And he is a just judge. So as the plaintiff begins to state the things that you've done and reminds us of the law, as a just judge, he says, yeah, you have broken the law. Yes, you were deserving of this fine and he hands down the punishment, whatever that punishment may be. He's a just judge. You can't turn a blind eye simply because you're his kid. But he's not just a just judge, is he? Because he's also your father and a loving father at that. So once he has handed down the penalty, he takes his robes off. He puts the gavel down. He walks down out of the judge's seat and he stands next to you and puts his arm around you and says, I am going to pay the penalty and fully takes his wallet out and he pays it completely. And that day you walk out of the courtroom justified in the eyes of the law because your penalty has been paid in full. You know what the Aramaic word for paid in full is? To telestai. It's the same word that Jesus spoke on the day of his crucifixion as he hung on the cross. And the last word that he breathed is to telestai. It is finished, paid in full. And he died. That is what God has done for us through Jesus. God in human flesh. God took upon himself the punishment that is due us so that we can walk into God's presence, not as sinners, but as saints, which just means saved sinners. That when we come before God, we don't have to cower as an outcast who's been caught. We can walk into his presence as sons and daughters of God. That is what he has done through Jesus Christ. That is the good news, the gospel message. And while the world would like to say that we need to do more, it's not enough just to accept a gift of grace. You have to earn it. You have to be better. Jesus is just one of many ways. The gospel message is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And none can come into the Father's presence except through him. So my question this morning as I wrap up is this. Have you been reconciled to God? Or are you still ascribing to some philosophy or false teaching of this world that would suggest that you just have to do something else? You have to strive a little harder. You have to be good enough. You have to make up for your mistakes before he can accept you back. Are you the kind of person that feel like you have to clean up the house before the housekeeper gets there because you're ashamed of how it looks? Or do you actually recognize the housekeeper comes over to clean up your house because you just can't really do it very well? The first to say, I can't do it very well. We are in need of a physician. God is our divine physician. He alone can heal us. And so this morning, what I'd like to ask you to do, and it's something we don't do nearly enough, but I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a moment. Because the invitation stands for all of us. 
who have been going through life, and maybe we've, maybe we've already accepted Jesus into our hearts, but the philosophy of this world that says it's on us, we have to fix it, we have to be better, is so deeply ingrained that we can't stop trying to earn it. Or maybe you're just one of those people who feels like you have fallen so far. <laughs> that what's the point of even asking? If God is who he says he is and he knows everything, then he's got to be disgusted when he looks at us. That's the belief that some of us carry in with us this morning. We get dragged into church. We come here and it's almost kind of like, punishing ourselves because we just feel so overwhelmed by the filth of this world, the things that we have given ourselves over to. And we are done trying to be good enough. We've reached our end. And so this morning, if you have reached your end and you're done trying and you're ready to truly be reconciled to God, then I want to simply invite you to confess that sounds something like this and if you want to even just repeat these words it's fine God I'm tired I'm tired of trying to be good enough tired of trying to earn back into relationship with you tired of trying to clean myself up I need help I need you. And I thank you that although you are a just judge, you're also a loving father. And that you made a way for me to come back, to be made new. I thank you that you love in spite of my rebellion. And Jesus, I invite you to not only be my Savior, but to be my Lord. To be not only the head of this church, but the head of my life, my goals, my aspirations, my appetites, my family, even my identity. Would you do what I can't do? Would you break the chains of bondage that I find myself in? Would you clean me up? Would you draw close to me because I... <laughs> I'm ashamed. I thank you that you love me in spite of myself. And I invite you to have your way with me. Jesus, in your name, amen. I just want to ask you to do something courageous. If you just prayed that prayer, would you just stand up so that we can celebrate? <laughs> Scripture tells us that when, when a child turns back to God, whether for the first or the 50th time, there's a celebration in heaven the likes of which we can't even begin to fathom. 
And so let's join in that heavenly celebration right now. And by the way, if you have made that decision for the first time or you just like to process it with somebody, myself, Lee, one of the elders, we would love the opportunity to talk to you, walk with you, because when we say yes to Jesus, (laughs) we say yes to a battle that wages around us. We slap a target on our back and the enemy would love to take us down. So you may expect that your life's going to get a whole lot easier. Sometimes it actually gets a little bit more crazy and chaotic. So please don't think that you can just walk or need to walk through this alone. We are a family for a reason. Because we were not created to do life or follow Jesus Christ alone. So would you let one of us or somebody else know and just kind of say, would you walk with me through this? I'm excited, but at the same time, I don't really know what I just did. So I could use a little help. And now let's just celebrate, shall we? All right.